So this morning is scripture. Scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. It says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives... He will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. That's the word of God. As we approach the word, I know we just prayed, but I'd like to pray again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word promises that you look to those who are humble who are broken in spirit, and who tremble at your word. And Father, I pray that now as we listen to it, that that would be us. That we would not be proud, we would not dismiss what you say to us. That we would not assume that it has nothing to do with us, but instead we'd be eager to hear. That you would lead us in joyful repentance, and that we would enjoy your blessing as you look to us and give life and hope and peace. And I ask that you would do that through your Holy Spirit now as we hear from the words of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Chris read from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I want to just briefly mention before we go to our text in Luke why I asked him to read that passage of Scripture. He says that he, Paul, built on the foundation of Christ and that you and I each have the opportunity to build on the same foundation. If you are a believer, you are building on that foundation. Meaning, if you have come to Christ and acknowledge that you are a sinner and that Christ paid your debt on the cross, that you deserve the punishment he took, but he took it for you and you are trusting him, for forgiveness and for new life. Your life now belongs to God and you are building on the foundation that Jesus Christ laid when he died for you and rose from the dead. But Paul says there are different possibilities for those who build on that foundation. He says some build on top of it with wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, the things that you do in life are not valuable things. And so you are built on a firm foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, but nothing you do in your life, frankly, matters. The other possibility, he says, is that you can build with precious stones and gold and silver. And so on the firm foundation of Christ, the things that you do in this life do matter, not only now, but for all of eternity, and that our lives and the work of our lives one day will be tested when we stand before Jesus Christ. 
I believe that's true of everyone here. And it's my prayer that as we listen to the words of Jesus in this message, that we would be ready to stand before Jesus. And that the things that we do in this life would matter for all of eternity. Paul says, God loves to reward you for faithful service. It's my prayer that you would experience the blessings and the rewards that come from faithfully living for Christ. We've been going slowly through the book of Luke. And today we're going to see a passage where Jesus tells his followers what to do while he is gone. And if if you're honest, if you're like me, sometimes you wonder, where is Jesus? Have you ever wondered that? Jesus makes it sound like some of the passages in Luke that he would return very shortly after he ascended to heaven. It's been 2,000 years. Do you ever wonder where he is? Why he hasn't returned yet? If that's you... I would take great encouragement from the passage of Scripture that we're about to read because what you find out is this is all part of God's plan. Jesus said that he would be absent. He didn't say how long. And he gave us instructions for how to live while he is gone. And I want to do two things. I I always read through the passage, and usually I read through it somewhat slowly, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to read all of it, because it hangs together so tightly. I want you to hear it beginning to end, and then I'm going to take it apart in just a few sections, and hopefully all of us will understand how we should live as a result of what Jesus teaches us to do while he is gone. Look with me at Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Scripture says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him. And give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. 
but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is a parable of Christ that if you've heard it before, probably has caused you some anxiety. And to be honest, one of the reasons that I preach through books from chapter 1 all the way through to the very end of the book without skipping anything is because if I were to choose passages that I thought people would respond well to, I probably would not have chosen this passage. We do not like to think about Jesus saying things like this. But here's the thing. Jesus loves you. Everything he says is for your good. And so I believe that this passage is for my good and for your good, and it is a blessing to our church to carefully listen to what he has said in it. And so I want to point you to a few things in specifics in the text that I believe will speak very directly to us and to our church. And first, I want you to notice in verse 11 why Jesus gave this parable. The very first phrase is, as they heard these things. In other words, look at the beginning of chapter 19, look at chapter 18, and understand the context for this parable. Jesus has just had a rich young man come and ask how to have eternal life. And Jesus revealed that this young man did not love God. Instead, he loved his things, and he, in sorrow, walked away from Jesus and was lost. Last week, I preached a message, and I I urged you to put Jesus Christ first in your life, that all that you have belongs to him. And there's no place For you and I to have things in our lives that are not part of our service to King Jesus. If you have something that you feel like is just yours, you are a thief because God has given it to you and you are not using it in his service. And I want to say a few more things about that. I don't want anybody to misunderstand. There are all kinds of things that we can enjoy and be thankful for. But we are not here for ourselves. We are here for the king. And if we respond like that rich young ruler, we also will walk away from Christ and be lost. Thank God there are two other people that Luke tells us about who responded differently. There's a blind man that received mercy as he called out to King Jesus. And Jesus rescued him and saved him. And scripture says that he followed Christ and everyone glorified God because they could see what Jesus did in this man's life. And it wasn't a momentary salvation, but he followed him. And then you see Zacchaeus. You know, you can look at the blind guy and say, well, that guy had nothing to give up. It's super easy to follow Jesus if you're not losing anything. Well, maybe. I, I wouldn't say that that's actually true. But in case you think that way, Luke shows you Zacchaeus, who is filthy rich. And when he meets Jesus... And he finds his sins forgiven. His stuff doesn't matter. He says, I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor. He has a compassion and a love for other people that he didn't have before he met Christ. And he says, if he'd wronged anyone, he would repay the wrong four times what he had stolen. So what you find is a thief who had been greedy 
is forgiven, and all of a sudden he's generous. And Zacchaeus shows us what it means to follow Christ. You and I, if you have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've been changed. And Jesus invites you to follow him. And as they were listening to these things, they saw somebody walk away. They saw a man healed. They saw a man forever changed. As they were seeing and hearing these things, Jesus told them this parable. And it's interesting to note, he gives two reasons. Number one, because he was near to Jerusalem. Luke has showed that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus knows he's going to die there. But everyone else thought he would be crowned as king there. Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And so people are thinking that Jesus' life and ministry is leading to the kingdom of God. And it says very clearly, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They were wrong. And so Jesus tells them this parable so that they understand he is not going to be immediately reigning on a throne in Jerusalem. Instead, he's going to go into a distant country. He went to the Father, is how he describes it in John's Gospel. If you look at the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, you see the apostles saying that Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ as a result of his crucifixion and resurrection, that God has glorified him And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 28 that all power had been given to him. In one sense, he is reigning, but he is not physically here. And he has not subdued his enemies who hate him, who do not want him to rule. His reign is not visible and he has not yet returned from the Father. Jesus taught that it would be this way For a time. That's part of what we should walk away from with this parable is, oh, Jesus actually said it would be like this. This is all part of the plan. The Apostle Peter said in one of his letters to the churches that we should not consider God slow to keep his promises just because it's been a long time since Jesus left. Peter said, A thousand years with the Lord is like a day. God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And so to us, 2,000 years seems like an unimaginable length of time. But for God, it's no more than just a day. And at just the right time, when the Father has planned it, Jesus will return. So given the fact that this is all part of the plan, that Jesus said it would happen, then it has happened, That he is reigning, but he's not returned. What are you and I to do in the meantime until he comes? Well, that's the second reason Jesus told this parable. First, he had corrected this idea that he was going to be immediately crowned king in Jerusalem. Second, he wants you and I to understand how we should live while he's gone. So notice, I want to show you the different reactions to Christ. Notice first... The king's absence in verse 11 to 14. He clearly teaches that Jesus will be gone. We don't know how long. Verse 12, he says, Therefore a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Well, Jesus has done that. He has gone and received the kingdom. He has been crowned the king. He just hasn't returned yet. And so as we wait, we are to engage 
in business, and Jesus gives instructions for while he's gone here. Look with me at verse 13. It says, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom... He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So while the king is away, while he is absent, he gives you this incredibly general thing. Do something. Conduct business. He doesn't say what the business is, but it is the king's business, and he expects you to gain something. He's not telling you to just be busy. He wants you to work for his kingdom. And I believe that this has two different applications. At the end of this message, I want to talk a little bit about applications for us as individuals. What do you do as a person? But before we go there, I want to talk a little bit about it as a church As the people of God, you know, we're not commanded to just work by ourselves. We're also commanded to work together as a body, which means we have to agree on some things. If you remember when I preached through Philippians, it's probably two years ago now, Paul prayed that the Philippian church would have knowledge of the will of God so that they could discern what was best for their church. Meaning he expected the leaders in the church to understand they as a church were called to baptize and disciple believers. And the way that they did that in Philippi would probably look a little bit different than how it looked in Ephesus or in Rome or in Jerusalem or in Holly. It means that our leaders need to have discernment and that we should follow their leadership. So one of the things that I believe we should pray for our church is that we would have that kind of discernment to know what is best. One of the things that you can think about, as Jesus says, that that he commanded his servants to conduct business. If you are in business, how often do you conduct reviews? Do you wait until you're bankrupt and close the doors? No. Very often, businesses will do quarterly reviews. They want to assess if their plans for business are effective in making money because they care about money. Well, if that's true of non-Christian businesses that only care about money, how much more should it be true of the church of God who has been given the task of doing heavenly divine business? We need to not only be busy, we need to think about are the things that we are doing effective For the kingdom of God. Are we seeing people baptized? Are we seeing people who did not know Jesus come to know Jesus? And are we seeing immature Christians grow in their faith so that they not only have heads full of knowledge, but they have hearts full of love for Christ? If we think about the things that we do and the things that we've been doing for decades, maybe longer, and we don't see measurable fruit, we should be doing something different. And if we're not effectively reaching the community of Holly, and I think for many reasons we could say we are not as effective as we could be and should be, we need to think about how to do things differently. We need to not just be busy. The last thing I want is a church full of overly busy people. 
That sowed seeds of division and even divorce in homes. We need the opposite. We need to be faithful in kingdom business and in building people up, not wearing them out. So Jesus commands that these servants conduct business. He expects them to have growth. Now, that might be sort of distressing. You might feel like maybe that's not fair because you can try and fail in business and you can try different things in church and not see fruit. I want to give you some real encouragement here. Notice how Jesus treats the first two servants as he calls them to account. Look at verses 15 through 19, and I want to show you, we've seen the king in his absence and his instructions. Now look at the return of the king and the reward that he gives. So look at verse 15 through 19 with me. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your minas have made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Look what happened. Jesus delights to bless the people who were faithful. These guys are faithful in different capacities. They did what they could. They did what they knew how to do. And Jesus blesses them both according to their faithfulness. I think I read the whole parable, right? And I think it's easy for us to sympathize with the last guy. We're going to talk about him in a minute. And you worry, you know, maybe this guy didn't have what it takes. Maybe he did what he knew how to do and it just didn't work. That's not true at all. Not even remotely. And here's why. Because any growth that happens as a result of our serving the king comes directly from the king. And I'll prove it to you both from this passage and from how Jesus describes growth in the Gospel of John. In this passage, do you know what these guys started with, all three of them? They started with nothing. It's not that they came into their positions with having money and they were able to invest their own money for the good of the kingdom. Everything they had came from the king. And that's also true of us. Whatever we have to serve King Jesus with came directly from the king. And not only that, not only has the king given us good gifts, he's also guaranteed us growth as we abide in him. Now that might sound crazy. Because you might feel like, I've been trying to serve Jesus and I'm not seeing growth. Well, maybe part of the problem is we've got a misunderstanding what growth is. But I want to read to you, and if you want to turn there, you can. Look at John 15 and listen to how Jesus describes how faithful servants produce fruit. Or in this context, growth. John chapter 15, I'm going to read just a couple of verses. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, like the servant who did not produce growth. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The Father is intending to help you bear fruit. It may be painful, but it's for your good. He will make sure that as you abide in Christ, you will do it. Now look at verse 3. It said, Although already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself... Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, when you abide in Christ, you will produce fruit. It's inevitable because Christ is our source of life. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Are you worried about your lack of fruitfulness? Start here. Ask. Ask. And as you ask, be certain that you are abiding in Christ. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You are not responsible for creating fruit. Jesus says that's absolutely impossible. And you are not responsible for creating growth. You cannot do that. These servants could not have done anything unless they first received something from the king. And you and I can't do anything unless we first abide in Christ. So the question is, how do you do that? Well, I'll get there in just a minute. Before we go there... I want to look at what happens to the one servant who failed his master and suffered loss. So we've seen the absence of the king. We've seen his return and his rich reward to servants who were faithful. Now let's look at the king's return and the loss of this servant. Look at verse 20 to 26 with me. Jesus says, then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This servant is very much like the rich young ruler. If you ask the question, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, first, look at what it means to not abide in Christ. Did you hear what this guy said as he described the king, as he described the master? He describes Jesus and says, I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Does that sound like abiding? Does this servant want to have anything to do with the master? No. He doesn't know who the master is. 
He doesn't love him. He doesn't want anything to do with him. He's afraid of him. And that's terrifying because I think a lot of us are also afraid of God. We don't trust him, especially as we experience pain, as we experience fear. Sometimes we blame God for those things, and so we try to protect ourselves, and we'll do the little bit that we know we have to do. You know, maybe you attend church, maybe you give a little bit, maybe you try to be honest at your work. You know, you do what you have to do, but deep down, you don't trust God. You're afraid of him. You just feel like he's waiting to pounce on you with a hammer. And if that's you then you're never going to abide in Christ. You're never going to seek his presence in your life because you don't love him because you're afraid of him. Someday I'm going to talk about the fear of the Lord. Someday, God willing, I'd love to write a book on it because the fear of the Lord is a beautiful, amazing concept. But, But it does not mean that God is out to get you. It does not mean that God has set you up, like he's put you in a situation where he's just waiting for you to be unfaithful so he can take your stuff and punish you. This guy has a profound misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And the reason he suffers loss is he has no idea who the master is. Some people wonder if this guy is saved. I Honestly, that's not the point. It's like asking, God, what can I do and make sure that I don't go to hell, but I don't have to do anything for you right now. That's a wrong question. That's a dumb question. Like, do you really want to just take that chance? Say, I'm not going to do anything for God with my life. I'm just going to hope that I go to heaven when I die. That's terrible. If you're asking that kind of question, probably you're not saved. It shows that you don't have a desire to love and serve the master. If you don't have a desire to serve him, you're never going to produce fruit. And Jesus says, if you don't produce fruit, you're going to be taken off and thrown into the fire. In reality, I think the evidence suggests that this guy wasn't saved at all. The king calls him evil. Jesus never calls his redeemed people evil. He calls us to account. He calls us to repent. But if you have been washed by his blood and cleansed, I don't believe that you would have this kind of attitude towards your master. Notice the servant, his understanding of the king is deeply insulting. God is not unjust. God does not reap where he hasn't sown. That would make him a thief, and God is not a thief. God, quite the opposite, gives generously. Jesus says that the Father loves to pour out blessings, both on the just and the unjust, because he's a gracious God. He is full of grace, and he loves to pour out rewards on us when we serve him. But a life that does not serve God is a life that demonstrates no love for God. And it's a life that will be eternally separated from God. And that separation is absolutely just. Not only do you see it in the loss that this servant suffered, you see it in the wrath of the king. Look at verse 27. It says, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And you think, oh my goodness, did Jesus really say that? This really matters. There's no room for you to be on the fence today. Either Jesus is your king and you will receive grace and mercy, or you are opposed to his rule and you will suffer loss and ruin. People 
will die and have already died because they rejected the Savior. If you have questions about what this looks like, you can look later in this chapter. Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem because when he goes to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders, they all reject him and they all cry out for him to be crucified. They say terrible things like, let his blood be on us and on our children. And this is the king who opened the eyes of the blind, who forgave sinners, who healed the lame, and they want him dead because they don't love him. And he's a threat to all that they are. Jesus says that the city of Jerusalem will suffer judgment, and they did suffer judgment in 70 AD when the Romans knocked down the walls and killed thousands of people. And do you know why Jesus said that happened? Look at the last verse of this chapter. Verse 44, Jesus says, They are going to tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, the king was there, and they rejected him. And as a result, Jerusalem historically did suffer this exact judgment. But it's not just the people who were alive in Jesus' time. You and I have the opportunity today to make Jesus the king of your life. And if you reject King Jesus, you also will suffer the same kind of wrath. Jesus is pictured here as a just judge. You can't miss the mercy that he is extending. And I don't want you to miss, if you pay attention at the end of this chapter, Jesus is weeping as he pronounces this judgment. God does not delight in judging the people who reject him. Scripture says God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but it is just. And that is what Jesus is describing here for those who rejected him. The truth is, We have this choice now, and so I would beg you to ask for the mercy of King Jesus now. He is a good king, and he's full of grace. Recognize that you are not your own. God made you, and Jesus died to rescue you from slavery to sin. You are twice owned, so you should no longer live for yourself, but for him who loved you, your king should be your first allegiance. Everything you have belongs to him, and he is returning soon, and he will demand an account from you. So the question is, how do we serve Christ now? Well, number one, I believe you confess your sin. If you have not been serving Christ, you have been using the things he has given you for yourself, and you are wrong, and you should repent. So number one, be ready for the king to return by repenting of your sin. Ask for his mercy. He loves to give it. Just like we sang, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. King Jesus will forgive you. Admit your guilt. Number two, Abide in Christ. This is a huge Bible-long concept of what it means to become part of who God is. But I would first tell you one way that we can abide in Christ today is as we take communion, we worship the God who shed his own blood and gave his own body for us. 
Communion is an opportunity to remember the love of God for you, and as you remember God's love, your love for God should rise in return. The scripture says we love because he first loved us. We are going to remember his love and ask the Lord to help your heart reply with love. So abide in Christ by remembering the death of Jesus for you and the resurrection. Second, Jesus said, if my words remain in you, if my words remain in you, that's part of abiding in Christ is remembering what he taught. So if you want to abide in Christ, you need to have a heart to know all that Jesus taught, not just, you know, the golden rule, which is pretty popular universally, but the reality that he is returning and he's coming as a judge and you need to be ready for that day. Have a heart. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know, I don't really know much about the Bible. And that's okay. All of us start there, but we shouldn't stay there. Maybe you need to commit and and just recognize, I need to know Jesus better and I need to know his word better. We've been in Luke for a long time. Have you noticed how often Jesus is devoted to teaching the Old Testament? One of the last things Jesus does on this earth is he takes two people from Genesis through Malachi and he shows how all of it points to him. Jesus loved the Old Testament. And I would say to you, we also ought to be devoted to his word. And it's all his word. So first, abide in Christ by remembering what he did for you in love. Second, abide in Christ by remembering what he taught and having a heart for his word. Third, abide in Christ by obeying his commands. The clearest command that we have in this text is that you and I are to be engaged in business for the kingdom. So let me ask, are you engaged in business for your king? Are you serving him at your church and in your home? So that others hear the good news of Jesus? Are we giving them an opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus? One of the things that I worry about as I look at our different ministries, we do a lot of good things. There aren't a lot of times where people can respond. And I want to see people saved and I want to see people baptized. We need to be inviting them to believe in Jesus so that they can experience this new life and be ready to meet him face to face. We need to be busy but not just busy. We need to be busy about our king's business. Fourth, we abide in Christ by loving other Christians. Sometimes people get the attitude, you know, I can just study my Bible. I love the word of God, but I don't really love the people of my church. That's a problem. If you receive the love of Jesus, it's not just for you. It should flow through you to the people around you. So abide in Christ by loving other Christians. Love other Christians by praying for them and meeting their physical needs. Fifth, and I say this especially to to those of you who work kind of a nine-to-five job, work for Christ, not for yourself. Well, how do you engage in kingdom business as you are at work? How do you do this if you're a carpenter, a mechanic, or an accountant, or a teacher? I believe, number one, your attitude and who you work for is huge. You don't work for your boss. You work for your King Jesus. And the things that you earn are not yours. They are gifts from your King. Everything you have and are belongs to him. So you need to work hard and with humility. 
Chris asked me last week, so you just encourage people to sell their stuff, maybe even put a for sale sign in your front yard. How do you do that if you're a carpenter and you need your tools in order to put food on the table for your family? Well, you need tools. You can serve the Lord with your nine-to-five job, but the difference is, are you serving the Lord or are you serving yourself? If you're serving the Lord, you're going to be sacrificial with what you earn. You're going to give to the kingdom ministry. And you're going to teach your kids, most of all, that you need to follow Jesus with your life, that we are different than your average American who just loves to work for the weekend and vacation. We instead work for our king. That also means that when we are at home and we're not on the clock, that we don't live for ourselves I believe that there's a healthy way to enjoy the good things of God. I'm I'm not saying you have to become some sort of desert monk who doesn't touch money or have any fun. God's people should love to have fun, but there's a difference. Sometimes you ought to enjoy good things with an attitude of thankfulness, with an attitude of worship. And let, Let me show you what I mean by this. This is my favorite illustration. I enjoy coffee to the glory of God every single morning. You know how I do that? I recognize that God is the creative genius who made a bush that grew a cherry that had a seed that when you roast it, it not only smells wonderful, it tastes wonderful, and it gives you energy in the morning when you don't have any strength. It is a good gift and God made it and I can worship the giver. I'm not just thankful for it. I remember the genius of the God who made it. You can do that with any of God's gifts. But you can also selfishly enjoy them and completely ignore the giver. And so as you recognize that God gives you good things, let them be occasions for worship in your life. Second, don't just keep those good things for yourself. And and this applies with coffee. It applies with your hobbies. Regardless of what you do with your time, You ought to enjoy good things, but you also ought to share them generously and to point to Jesus while you do. Paul tells Timothy, those who are rich in the things of this world should share them generously so that they have a good foundation and expect an eternal reward in the next life. You should give good things away in the name of Jesus. You know, we're really good at giving our junk away. I just did that yesterday at Goodwill. I got rid of a ton of junk. But we ought to give good things away in the name of Jesus. We ought to work joyfully so that we can be generous. Paul says in Ephesians, Let him who stole steal no, no more, but laboring with his hands. Why? So that he may be generous to the one who lacks. You don't work to build your own kingdom. You work to be generous in the name of your king. And finally, you might be genuinely poor. You might be more like the blind guy than Zacchaeus. What do you give if you have no money and no resources? Well, let me urge you to devote your time and your energy to prayer. Pray for our church. Pray for our world. And not only devoting time to prayer, but devoting time to serve. 
You can serve at our church. You can serve in our children's ministry, helping kids know the word of God. You can serve on Wednesday nights. You can pray with us on Wednesday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, and any time during the week. I would love to meet with you, to pray with you and for you. Be devoted to prayer as Jesus taught us. So in all that you do, let it be done for your king. And when he returns... He will reward you with kindness and generosity and joy. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, make us wise. Lord, we want to trust in your mercy that you will produce fruit in us as we abide in you. Give us hearts that love to abide in you. Lord, I ask that you would make us fruitful. I pray that we would see your blessings in this place, in this church, and everywhere where your word is preached. That as we remain in the words of Christ, as we dedicate ourselves to be humble under your word, that you would lift us up for your name's sake, not for us. And Lord, I pray that you would make us ready, that this parable that Jesus told would remain in our minds, that we would know that we will stand before you And Father, I pray that day would be a day of joy for everyone here. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I dismiss you today, I want to remind you what Jesus said. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Paul prayed for the church in Thessalonica. He said, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus... Direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And that is our prayer as we go today. Go in peace.